Hi, and welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast brought to you with the support of Medical Mutual. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Thanks for joining us. For a lot of households, a home computer with internet access is as common and somewhat argue as necessary as the kitchen sink. But one of the things we have discovered during the pandemic is that isn't the case for every household. Throughout 2021, Cranes Cleveland is really going to be focusing attention on what we call the digital divide, including an hour-long forum that's going to come up on Wednesday, May 12th at 10 a.m. Joining us today on The Landscape are two Cranes reporters who've been focusing on the digital divide, Lydia Coutre and Rachel McCaffrey. Thanks both for joining us today. Of course, happy to be here. Lydia, let's start with a working definition. What do we mean when we say digital divide? What does it mean? I think, you know, at its core, it is that gulf, that gap between those who can access the internet, computers, technology, and those who cannot. There are a number of factors that can contribute to this, whether that's educational, economic, social inequities. But the first fundamental issue is that technology piece. It's do these people, you know, do people have the technology to access the internet and can, can they access it? Do, is, the, is there the infrastructure to get them the internet? If you get them the internet, that's just the, that's just the first step. That's kind of the fundamental basic piece of it. But there's a lot more to it beyond that. No, exactly. Lydia is Lydia's spot on. So I, I cover technology and education. And we've really found this year that a lot of those first steps, a lot of the access piece is put into place now, at least with some temporary Band-Aids. But it's so much more than that. We really have to start looking at digital literacy. We have to start looking at how to financially make sure people can continue keeping these these access pieces in, in place. Rachel, do you have a feel for where Cleveland is among U.S. cities when it comes to citizens being able to connect to broadband? Where do we rank? Well, the issue is that a lot of these numbers are pre-pandemic. So this has changed a lot over this past year, and we don't really know exactly where we land just yet. But if we're looking at, I was doing some reporting earlier this year and looking at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance's report, which places Cleveland among the nation's worst connected cities. So this is based on 2019 data. Um, If you look though, about 31% of households in Cleveland don't have any kind of broadband plan at all. And about 46% don't have cable, DSL, or fiber broadband connections. That means that there's more people who have some sort of internet connection, usually based like through a cell phone plan. But if we're talking what you really needed for the pandemic, which was a tablet or a computer so that you could work from home, you could do school from home, Cleveland is near the bottom. At least they were. Again, we we have to wait and see how this shakes out, what sort of solutions where that put us after the pandemic. But at least right before the pandemic, before everything closed down, we were in, in bad shape. This is The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. More of our conversation in just a moment. But first, a word from our partner, Medical Mutual. We're going to talk both about healthcare and education because those are the two, two main components of digital divide, two of the key ones. But what other areas of life, uh, Lydia, do we see the digital divide really starting to affect our daily lives? I think the past year has really highlighted the digital divide, which has always existed. But I think in a year when everyone was forced to connect digitally, we saw it kind of peek through in ways that we didn't necessarily expect or that I think a lot of people took for granted. I mean, when we're saying, you know, when we're telling people, you know, connect via Zoom, you know, virtual classes, I think there's a lot of people 
who take that technology for granted. And when you say, oh, I don't have access to the internet or someone doesn't have a phone, you, you know, there's so many people who are just, you don't have a phone. That's, that's preposterous to a lot of people, but it's the reality that many of fellow Clevelanders, many Americans live with every day. And I think the pandemic laid that bare. And um, in, in healthcare, which is kind of, you know, what I've been covering for, for a few years here in Cleveland, um, initially, kind of the first shift that had to happen last March was a shift to telehealth. And the technology for telehealth had been here for many years, Um, you know, for decades, really, there were different options to connect virtually to patients. Um, And pretty quickly, hospitals were ramping up those options, and they were being adopted at pretty staggering numbers, um, really pretty immediately last March and last April. And, and, the re- it hadn't been adopted previously because there was a lot of skepticism among patients, among providers, among payers, and there really needed to be buy-in among all three of those parties for, for this to happen at all. And by necessity, the past year thrust us into this like live, you know, real-time experiment of, of using telehealth. And uh, pretty immediately, you know, la- last April, I was hearing from doctors, from hospital leaders that we were never going to go back to pre-pandemic levels of telehealth use, like telehealth is here to stay. Um, and by, you know, by later in the summer, it, it went down a little bit from those, those initial spikes. But alongside that push for connecting to your doctor virtually, there was also this push of remote patient monitoring, which is another technology that has been around for a long time. You can think of this like patients monitoring their blood sugar, patients maybe taking their blood pressure at home, um, and there were different way there were different health systems partnering with companies to try to figure out how to measure um, blood oxygen levels at home. And even though some of those pilots, there was a question of, well, are you connecting that to an app? Are you connecting that to a smartphone app? Um, and there, but there were some different pilots, like MetroHealth, for instance, um, was sending patients home with a Bluetooth connected with different Bluetooth connected devices. But also, they were sending them home with they, had, they bought some kits through a grant um, to send them home with a tablet that had a hotspot. So like that kind of, that they were able to kind of lend out to patients. So I think that for the first time, um, at least broadly, there was kind of this discussion of let's look at this in a different way. And I think the pandemic really, really forced that. When we talk about the groups who have really been affected by this when it comes to healthcare, are, are there any particular groups that have really suffered the most in terms of the digital divide who don't have access? I mean, I, I think I, I don't have... Um, Offhand, I don't have a lot of data into that right now. The populations that are typically affected in healthcare are pretty much the populations that you would expect. Um, the social determinants of health um, kind of cross, you know, the social determinants of health are the, the different factors that impact a patient's life. So that's, you know, poverty, that's education levels. That's, there's all these different social factors that impact health because, you know, the, the statistic is... of what impacts the health of a patient happens outside the walls of a hospital. So you have to think of all these other life factors. And so, and one of those, you know, the question now is, is access to technology and is access to some of these different services and the ability to connect to your doctor this way going forward, is that going to be considered a social determinant of health? Um, And I think that maybe, you know, I think that's a question going forward. I think, um, I'm kind of hearing some some of my sources, some of, some doctors in the area start to think about that as maybe that's that's another thing to add to that list of how do we think about that impact on health. And I think as far as populations who are impacted by the divide, that tends to be marginalized communities. That tends to be 
um, impoverished communities. Um, I don't know if Rachel has, I think Rachel might have better insight into which communities are impacted by the digital, you know, may be more, more affected by the digital divide. And that's also going to be those who can't access health digitally. Lydia is Lydia's spot on. Really, the pandemic and the digital divide just exasperate existing divides. Any of the divides that already exist in our society, this just makes it so much deeper and so much stronger. So like you said, marginalized communities. So communities who are impoverished um, are huge. That's that's really the big one that everyone's concerned about. But there's also the senior community. That That's an interesting one where really, regardless of wealth status, they can be disconnected by, by the digital divide. And that's less an access issue. A lot of times people will have the access. They might not have the education and know how to use it. That's why the digital divide is such a complex problem, is there's so many different factors that lead to the divide and so many different solutions that we need in order to fix it. It's not a one-size-fits-all type of type of problem or solution. I would wonder, in the case of healthcare, especially with a, a more, more elderly population, Many of us are so used to doing everything online, but trying to talk to your doctor online would be difficult, I think, for people who are really used to that face-to-face discussion. I think we really saw that when it came to the rollout of the vaccine distribution. I think that was exemplified so clearly in the conversations I, I had um, with, with providers, with patients, and with advocates, where um, you know the messaging at, for initially was a lot of sign up online for to get scheduled for your vaccine appointment. And the first population after healthcare workers, you know, were vaccinated was elderly folks. And that's a population that typically either, you know, doesn't have internet access, doesn't have the device, doesn't know how to use it. And I think there was a lot of frustration there. I, I spoke to one um one elderly patient, she's a nine year old woman, and she said, you know, they they're telling me to go to go online or the, the internet, you know, the Google, like she, it, she just didn't even have the words necessarily to, 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 to describe what, what was being asked of her. And I think that that so exemplifies the issue. Unfortunately, she had a, a support network. Her family helped her get, get signed up. Um, but I, I just think there's so many that after a year of discussing this, there was still a lot of disconnect there, um, for some patients and for the way that this all came together. And I actually spoke with some different um, organizers in the community um, who really felt that their role was to help to make these connections. And they said, you know, this is kind of the system working. Like they said, this is this is our role. Like we want to be able to be here and to make these connections. And that's not necessarily a problem. Like we want to help coordinate to get patients scheduled. And, and you know, in some ways that's that working. Um, but so it's kind of this question of who needs to be ensuring that connection is there. Um, and I think that's a question going forward. And I think how we solve that will be really interesting to watch. But I do I do think, yes, the senior population, um, there was a there were a lot of questions about how they were going to get served, how they were going to get scheduled. And I think there was very palpable frustration in the early weeks of the rollout um, among that population and their families in how they were able to access it when so many of the so much of the messaging was sign up on your patient portal or go to this website. And there was a lot of uh, confusion there. How did the education systems deal with this issue, especially with, as you said, so these kids don't have computers at home or they don't have good Internet access? Were, were the schools able to help them in some new way to, to get, with, get them what they needed? They were. 
that's part of the interesting thing here is the K to 12 system is what everyone thinks of when they say digital divide. Everyone thinks, wow, these kids have been, you know, doing school from home, whether it was just last spring or whether some of the big public districts, especially this entire year they've been from home. Everyone thinks first of that. And don't get me wrong, this was a huge, wonderful effort from the districts and from nonprofits in the community to come together and get everybody what they needed in order to be able to do school from home successfully. But a lot of, to be fair, a lot of the districts pulled together quickly and were able to do that. I know I talked to Cleveland schools last year, early on in the pandemic, they did have to do a lot of workarounds. A lot of their kids only had phones at home. They didn't have the the different solutions they needed. So they did a lot of workarounds. They did some printouts for people. They did TV uh, lessons, like on the TV, things like that. But by this year, for the when they've been doing school from home pretty much the entire year, they've just started to go back now. Um, they really were able to get a lot of donations from the community, a lot of hotspots out to families, a lot of laptops, tablets, things like that. Really, they were able to connect kids with what they needed for this year. Like I said, temporary band-aids that does not minimize how much work and how necessary those band-aids were. But really the question now becomes, what do we do going forward? Yes, they were able to get them what they needed to make this year work, but what happens to the kids who are entering kindergarten next year? You know what I'm saying? The, The kids who are in first, second, third grade this year, they have computers at home now, they have hotspots, or they were able to work with Digital C and get low-cost internet to their house. They've got what they need. What happens now either when these kids graduate and go off to to college or to the workplace, and what happens to the next generation of of students who are coming in? I probably shouldn't be calling them kids this whole time. They're students, young learners, but what what happens to them going forward? What happens to their families? That's really what the, the question becomes now. There was a ton of really good work that happened this last year to come together, but what, what do we do going and I, forward? And I do want to jump in and say, on the topic of re- really great work in the past year, when I'm talking about, you know, the digital divide and the senior population getting access to the vaccines, I do have to give, you know, providers a lot of credit. There was, there were a lot of great efforts still um, among the hospitals, among different community providers to get, you know, elderly folks vaccinated. And there were, you know, there were phone campaigns. There were a lot of a lot of efforts, you know, I, t- I spoke to folks at UH and they, within 12 hours of their initial rollout of the, the messaging of, you know, sign up on my chart, they were starting to get calls to their, to their main line. And they said, oh, let's, let's set up a, a call center. And I know at the Cleveland Clinic within, you know, that they sent out messaging. And then if they don't hear back from someone within, you know, I think it's 24 hours, they had some sort of like threshold. If they don't hear back, then they do the, the follow-up phone call. It's not that the, the seniors weren't then, you know, they didn't then just say, oh, no, we didn't get a, an email. They just don't get vaccinated. There were still those efforts, but I think it is kind of, it showed what our default is as a society and how we think about how we access people. And I think that just kind of, I, I, yeah, I just don't want to like leave the impression that the hospitals kind of sat around or the, or the health centers in the community sat around and said, well, that's it. Um, Cause they've done a lot of great work as well. But I do think kind of the default was really laid bare in the past year. Just wanted to add that. This is the Landscape of Cranes Cleveland podcast. We're brought to you with the support of Medical Mutual. We're talking about the digital divide today with Cranes reporters Lydia Coutre and Rachel McCafferty. Don't forget, Wednesday, May 12th at 10 a.m., Cranes will be holding an hour-long forum. You can find out more by visiting uh, the Cranes Cleveland website, cranescleveland.com slash events to find out more. What we, We've been talking about nonprofits assisting in this process of helping to solve the digital divide. Rachel, are any particular that have really jumped out, that have really stepped to the fore to help people here in Northeast Ohio? Well, the Cleveland Foundation is always 
really great about stepping up and, and they've been working in this space for a while. So I'd say the Clean Foundation is definitely one of them. Digital C, I mentioned, they're actually doing a lot of the, the real work of connecting people to, to the internet. I, a lot of the technology is above my head, so I'm not going to try to break it down for you, but they are one of the, one of the groups who's out there actually building the infrastructure to get low-cost internet to our community. I'd say those are two of the big standouts. Lydia, what have you seen other interesting nonprofits? Um, so I, I just pulled up a chart. So you mentioned, you know, the Cleveland Foundation, which was one of many foundations in the area that came together last March to form the um, Greater Cleveland um, Rapid Response Fund for COVID. And I'm the formal name is yeah the Greater Cleveland COVID nineteen Rapid Response Fund, which in the past year has just um, has uh, a you know drawn in millions in contributions from individual donors and from businesses and from um, just a slew of community support and then also given millions in in donations to to various nonprofits who are supporting um, people in the community and um, digital C Rachel's correct is is a big individual you know independent nonprofit that's doing a lot in this area um, and the the rapid response fund did kind of a year, marked a year and looked at, you know, looked at the needs, looked at kind of the the big things it's learned in its past year of grant making. And I think what's interesting is it said, you know, it looked at what are the big needs and it identified the top five community needs consistently identified and addressing the digital divide is one of those. Um, and kind of saying like the transition to virtual virtual delivery of education, primary care, behavioral care, and case management really exacerbated access issues um, for those who don't have this reliable access. And so addressing that and really finding effective ways to do so is they, they identified in this report as one of the major needs going forward. Um, and so there were so many nonprofits and I always, as the nonprofits reporter, I struggled to, to, to name just one. Digital C was a leader there, um, but there were so many that really did a lot of great work when when it came to you know even you know d- driving you know delivering hand delivering computers to students and and to people and getting the word out and raising money and doing all kinds of different really creative things to make sure that folks who needed who needed devices and internet had different ways to access it um and i think what's important as rachel's kind of mentioned is finding sustainable ways to to do that in the future I wanted to mention one I wanted to mention one nonprofit that I was speaking to recently for a story that is really doing that f- kind of future look that I think was important. Uh, the Phoebe Foundation. I spoke to them for a story recently on the financial digital divide, which is a little deeper and a little more complex, like I said, such a multi-layered issue. But the Phoebe Foundation is doing something I find really interesting. They're small, so they can only help a small number of, of people on any given year, but they've been actually providing people with hotspots and devices, um, a lot of people in shelters. The thing that I found really interesting was that every time they give someone a device, those people are required to then take some digital literacy training and some financial literacy training. So they get the device, but they're also getting taught how to use it, how to best use it, because there's an issue there too when we talk digital literacy. It's not just how to use a device, it's how to use it safely, especially if you're doing things like banking and healthcare. You need to know about public Wi-Fi and what your good options are. You don't necessarily just want to take this computer you have and log on at 
you know, the library or McDonald's or something, you want to have a safe option to do that. But the Phoebe Foundation, they're doing, they do the training so that you know how to use it, how to use it safely. And they're doing the financial literacy training because they want to empower people to be able to continue affording these types of necessary devices and internet access in their lives going forward. So I think that's a really great example of a small nonprofit that's doing the work to look to the future, not just providing access now. Rachel, we've been we've been mentioning this uh, upcoming forum that that uh, Cranes is going to hold on Wednesday, May twelfth at ten a.m. So, what's it going to be about, and who's going to be there? I, I think it's going to be a really great conversation. So I'm going to be moderating a panel with a variety of speakers from Digital C, from Cleveland State towards Employment, and the Cleveland Foundation, and we're talking just about this issue about the digital divide and how our community can come together and offer solutions going forward. It's a really forward, it's going to be a really forward looking conversation. And it's also going to include Cleveland school CEO, Eric Gordon, who has spoken really eloquently to me over this past year about how the digital divide affects not only the students in his district, but our entire community. So I I would recommend that everyone sign up and check out our, our event later in May. Lydia Coutre and Rachel McCaffrey, thanks for sharing some time and some of your insight into the digital divide. We appreciate your work and look forward to more great reporting for Cranes throughout the year. Thank you. We also want to thank you for listening to The Landscape. It is a Cranes Cleveland podcast. It's presented with the support of Medical Mutual. Just a reminder, you can still register for that Digital Divide editorial forum. That's May 12th. You can find information on all of our upcoming events at cranescleveland.com slash events. We also have plenty of awards and nominations that are now open, including Notables and General Counsel and Excellence in HR. Those deadlines are approaching, so get your nominations in. That's at cranescleveland.com slash Be sure to join us for our next episode when we talk to Kristen Rizorka. She is the president and CEO of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. For our producer, Cody Smith, I'm Dan Paletta. Thanks again for joining us for The Landscape and look forward to talking to you again soon.